Well, just like uh, John said, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, this is a chapter that I would imagine we're familiar with in some way, um, the examples that are there and um, lessons that can be pulled out of those examples. And in this lesson, I, I really want to cover the whole chapter um, in big part for the purpose of showing how these examples fit under really one main point that the author is bringing into greater points, a greater focus that's being woven into the letter at this point in the context. We're going to start back in 32 through 39. I want to show you how chapter 10 is ended and how chapter 12 begins to help really begin to put into the mind what the writer is really trying to to say. What's the writer trying to accomplish? Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 32 through 39. And this, this again, is leading into uh, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 10, 32 through 39. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So he ends the chapter saying, we're not like those who withdraw back to destruction, but we're those who persevere and have endurance to the preservation of the soul. And so in chapter 11, he brings up a multitude of examples of faith to fill the gap of that exhortation, to kind of paint a picture. And in chapter 12, verse 1, notice he starts saying, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also. So he ends chapter 10 saying, we're like those who have had faith in an enduring way that's preserved their soul. Chapter 12 begins saying, okay, so now that we've seen these examples, these are now like these cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us, rooting us on. And I want to illustrate the importance of this in a couple of ways. These are Christians who had been Christians for, it seems like, quite some time. They had clearly been doing the right thing in their past. They had lived by faith, and they have done things that were impossible except by faith. They'd suffered great things. They'd even had their properties uh, seized from them, and they did that even joyfully in verse uh, 33 and 34. Um, But they were growing weary and were drawing back from their confidence Sometimes when somebody really is in a discouraged place and there's not really examples to encourage them around them, let's say even this congregation seems like they were a group where they weren't going to even find encouragement from one another here because it seems like they were all getting pretty discouraged. What do you do? I think in certain situations, you'll sometimes run into brethren where just telling them the right thing to do is enough. Right? Like if someone's withdrawing or they're maybe not doing the right thing, just saying like, well, here's what you need to do. And simple as that. But sometimes just telling someone the right thing to do really isn't enough to motivate them or change their attitude. And if that was enough, then the law would have been sufficient because the law told people, here's what you do. Well, okay, but what 
about when the law fails? What about when I'm just discouraged and even being told the right thing to do doesn't even motivate me or impact me? That's why you need something like Hebrews chapter 11, faith of itself. Just like there are practical applications to behavior, right? Like applications of how we should be conducting ourselves at work or school, ways we should be speaking, uh, ways to be evangelizing, things, things like this. Faith is also of that nature, that there's a way to make applications of faith. And it's important that as we mature, we understand the importance of helping each other to understand how to make applications of faith. On Wednesday for the exhortation, I I asked the question, why do teachers use illustrations? Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter of various illustrations of faith. Illustrations are meant to make the untangible tangible. Illustrations are meant to use tangible things that we can relate to to almost serve as a window to grasp something that is not as tangible to understand. And what God has done in the Old Testament leading to Jesus is you imagine that faith is almost like this puzzle. And what God was doing is putting pieces of this puzzle in place to try to paint this great picture of what faith is that culminates in Jesus embodying faith completely. So what we'll see is you have all of these different examples of people who have these pictures of faith. And when you get through this chapter, there's many applications of what faith is that have been made. So what we want to do is we want to see what kind of applications the writer is trying to make about faith using these examples to motivate the readers, especially the readers who would have received this letter who were discouraged. Uh, Verse um, 34 is going to be an important concept we'll see woven through the examples of chapter 11. He says that when you were doing well, when you were motivated even in suffering, when you even had joy in your suffering and in your losses, it was because you were looking to the reward and the better possession that's based in our mutual hope. That's going to be the focus of chapter 11. Faith looks ahead. And faith looks so intently at God's promises, faith will act and will suffer loss and will not focus or dwell on that loss because of the surpassing glory of the view of the promise and what's gained by promise. So, sorry, I haven't switched the slide, but um, ultimately this is going to culminate in the exhortation to fixate our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I've titled this lesson, From Faith to Faith that we're going to see from the beginning, the writer starts all the way back with Abel, one of the first examples we have of faith in in Scripture. And from Genesis, he's going to be working forward through the patriarchs, Moses, the time of the kingdom. And he's going to be showing how this this faith has been handed down to these generations so that we now can ultimately inherit the perfected form of this that was brought and culminated in Jesus Christ. So verses 1 through 7, we're going to start with how he portrays the reward of faith. In verses 8 through 22, really it's how faith sees. Like, what does faith look to? How does faith trust God's promises? And then verse 23 through 40, and 40 is the end of the chapter, it's going to culminate in the victory in faith and how that victory in faith impacts our response to God's promises. So let's start with verses 1 through 7 and looking at the reward of faith. I'm sorry, there was one more introductory thing I, I did want to bring up. Community cultivates camaraderie. Oftentimes, our closest associations determine both our motivation and our behavior. 
Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was dealing with the fact that there were Corinthian Christians who were denying the resurrection. And in the midst of talking about the resurrection and the truth that Jesus had risen, he brings up, do not be deceived for bad company corrupts good morals. So he brings up, this isn't just an innocent intellectual problem you're having. The problem is you're denying the resurrection because you're associating too closely with people who don't believe in the resurrection. And so you're letting that change your mind because you're too connected to those who you should be separated from. Ultimately, our closest associates determine both our motivation and our behavior. And remember, the Hebrew Christians, it doesn't seem like they were going to find motivation in one another right now. So where do they find motivation? By faith, by associating themselves much more closely to the camaraderie that's in the community of those who gained approval by God through their faith. So verses 1 through 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So verse 1, that neat definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is based in the communicated promises of God. Just like we looked at in Titus 1, when God says that he's going to do something, he's proven that he is always capable of fulfilling his promises. God deliberately gives us hope, and our trust in that hope gives evidence to its reality. So faith is also the conviction or the evidence of, not th of things not seen. Uh, I used to read that verse, and I think I read it wrong. Um, for the longest time, um, I would read this verse, and I would read it as, faith is based in the evidence of things not seen. So I'd think about, like, my faith is based in the fact that God has testified to himself, there's evidence for God. But if you read the verse, that's not what it's saying. That faith itself serves as the evidence, the visible manifestation of our unseen hope. That's this whole chapter and what we already read. That Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, the prophets, Rahab, David, all of these examples are people who we understand the unseen nature of faith by the visible quality of how they responded, right? So in verse 3, by faith we understand that worlds were prepared by the word of God. That God was not just working aimlessly in creating the world in seven days. Days one through five were days of preparation. God was speaking and working to create a world that was intended to be inhabited. And the intention was that God would inhabit that world with mankind. And everything through days one through five was preparing the world for habitation. That's going to be the, the theme of faith 
leading through chapter 11, that these men understood, men and women, that everything that God was promising was leading to a community where God would dwell in a place with his people. And that hope compelled them forward, not focusing on their visible and present circumstance, but at what God was working and doing ahead of them. So let's look at some of these examples specifically. Verse 4, Abel. One simple thing. Abel was righteous. God testified about his gifts, not that the gift itself was righteous, but that Abel was righteous and the gift was a testimony to that righteousness that was through faith. What happened to Abel because he was righteous? It's simple. He died. The Hebrews were being confronted with suffering. It's been a theme of Hebrews of trying to relate them to Jesus and to see how Jesus was compassionate and empathetic and would deliver them, not despite the suffering of death, but that they could be joined to Jesus more intimately through the suffering of death. Think about when you enter into something or are involving yourself in something and you have some kind of clear expectation of what it's going to be like. And then you involve yourself and your expectations are completely shattered. What does that tend to do to your motivation to be involved? Um, To illustrate the illustration in Hebrews 11, so at UPS, at Christmas season, we would have peak season, and we would hire employees seasonally to just work for a few weeks to handle the workload. We would try as hard as we could to tell them through the hiring process, this is going to be chaos. So when you come in here, this is not going to be easy work. Like It's going to be overwhelming, and you just have to prepare yourself that this is going to be hard. And if you're okay with that, we'll work with you. You'll learn how to do the job. This is going to be hard work, though. And there would be employees who'd be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they come in, and the boxes are stacking up, and they begin stressing out. And there have been employees I've seen literally walk out of the job because they, they were hearing it, but they weren't registering exactly how hard this job was going to be, so they didn't have endurance. Faith, by its most fundamental quality, is opposed to the world. The righteousness of God, we can't have an expectation that our lives by faith are just going to be easy roses and blossoms and valleys and dreams. God sets the expectation from the very beginning, righteousness is in opposition to the world. And we have to expect that if we're going to live by faith, we're signing up in big part for a hard life. And it's God's promises that motivate living that hard life with joy because we're not looking at the difficulty of the present, but at what that's working us towards by the basis of God's promise. Enoch, fellowship with God. That Enoch by faith, just like Abel still speaks though dead, Enoch transcended death by faith. So although faith suffers, death is not the end of faith. Faith transcends death because faith is in fellowship with the eternal God. So verse 6, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And we must believe that God is, that he is eternal, that he is all existing, ever present. And that because he's ever present and because he's spoken to us for the purpose of fellowship with us, he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Just like those employees at UPS, why would they be willing to endure a chaotic, hard job with weird hours where they'd probably be tired and agitated already? They would have to think the reward is worth it. That at the end of all of this, when I finish my work week, that the satisfaction of having done the job and getting the paycheck is worth it. And that's the idea that we're going to see here, the reward that God provides to those who seek him, 
so far recompenses the losses, they're incomparable, right? So an employee would have to think, you know what, I'm suffering and this is hard and I'm having to learn a lot, this is overwhelming, but I'm willing to endure because of the promise that this is going to be made worth it in some way. And God is no different. God rewards those who seek him. So verse 7, notice Noah was preparing something, a dwelling to be inhabited for salvation. And he did it through reverence, godly fear. The Hebrew writer has been giving strong exhortations to the reader, warning them about disobedience, warning them about turning away their ear from listening to God's word and God's exhortation in Christ. Noah, based in a godly sense of fear, understood that there was something coming that he hadn't seen. But because he had faith in God, he contributed by faith, preparing for the dwelling where his family and his household would be saved. So there is a reward of faith, and that is salvation with those who trust in God and in fellowship with God. 8 through 22, how faith sees. Um, I'm going to break this into some sections. We're going to start with 32 through 38, and we're going to look at, um, I'm sorry, not 32 through 38, uh, 8 through 12 with Abraham and Sarah first. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he, notice this, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Notice Abraham lived as a foreigner. Um, it's going to be mentioned in verse 13 that these examples are of men and women who confessed very openly that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were definitively in verse 10 looking ahead to what God was preparing for people to have fellowship with him according to his nature and according to his promise. Abraham's focus was on what God was building. He was on the community that God was promising. And the key thing, I think, with Abraham in verse 8, he separated himself for the sake of God's promise. He separated himself from his past, his family. Abraham was willing to go wherever God called him to go for the sake of the promise because his focus was not on what was being lost. He was not dwelling on what he was being separated from. His focus was on the promise. Whatever God is associating with this promise, wherever it leads me, that's where I'm going to go because that's where life is. And that leads to verse 11. Notice Sarah received ability to conceive through her faith. That she was not trusting in herself. She wasn't thinking about her ability or even her inability. She was so focused on God's faithfulness to the promise that she received ability to conceive by God through that quality of faith. And what this is doing is, this is again, it's like putting pieces of a puzzle down and we're seeing the picture of faith more and more clearly. There's just threads of weaving the same picture, the same tapestry together. And so because of her trust in God, using her body even as good as dead, and through Abraham, who is as good as dead, God 
so abundantly provided that there were more descendants that came from Abraham than even the sand and the seashore, as the sand of the seashore cannot be numbered. So 13, uh, 13 through 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country on their, of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a place to have fellowship with him and with his people. Not only did they consider that God clearly existed, that he was the great I am, but they were looking to the reward, and that reward in verse 16 was fellowship with God. And the promise of that fellowship was, was sufficient to lead them to focus their lives and focus their actions, not on an earthly citizenship or earthly accumulation, but on accumulating a further investment in that promise of that habitation with God. Um, look at verse um, 15. Something that I think is important to note is it says they, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Look back at chapter 10, uh, verse, verse 2. Um, I think there's an important relation here that helps to give further clarity of why the Old Testament animal sacrifices were so insufficient and what God was really seeking to accomplish in Jesus' death and why Jesus' death lead so much more clearly to perfection. It says, Otherwise, with the Old Testament sacrifices that could not be made perfect, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. I think the idea is the Old Testament sacrifices could not turn the mind in the direction to God's will clearly enough. There wasn't enough within the sacrifice, even inherently, that it was just an animal. Whereas Jesus' sacrifice shows us God's nature, Jesus' sacrifice embodies the glory of God's promise, the glory of God's love, Jesus' sacrifice embodies the will of God, Jesus' resurrection embodies the place that God is putting us according to his promises. And so we're able to turn our minds so fully in the direction of God's will and God's promise that now it's, we can imitate the same example that we can so fully focus on what's ahead that our minds are no longer attached to what is behind. And that goes back to chapter 10, verse 39. We're not like those who shrink back. We're not like those who withdraw back to their old lives or their own ways. And for the Christians of this time, they may have even been tempted to go back to the law. But that was still a withdrawal from the nature of the grace that was held within God's promises. Um, we're going to read verses 17 through 22, and I think there's a simple point here woven through these verses. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able even to raise people even from the dead, or God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. 17 through 22. The similarity between each of these events is confrontation with death. Abraham was confronted with the death of his own son, the son that God had promised all of his descendants were going to come from. And Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Why? Because he considered that God, because he promised Isaac would be the one. Well, God must be able even to raise him from the dead then to continue to fulfill his promise. And it's simply an inference Abraham makes based in thinking about God's faithfulness. And I think there's an important application in this. When God gives us commands, and that command is going to directly result in immediate loss. God says, um, love the brethren, be generous or evangelize. And we see in order to invest in that at all, I'm going to have to like let go of something in my life that I hold dear to myself. We have to see that as God is a rewarder of those who seek him, when God gives command, everything he commands holds within it the promise of recompense and reward. God wasn't telling Abraham to sacrifice his son just to play around with him. The command itself held a promise of life, and Abraham understood that by means of faith. So when God gives command, especially chapter 13, the Hebrew writer, when he finally gets to the more practical applications, he's not going to say, Okay, well, guys, you know, you, you've got some pretty hard things going on, so why don't you just relax for a while? You know, go just enjoy the world for a while. Just take it easy. Don't worry about God's will. Come back within a month after taking a sabbatical, and we'll think more about applying God's will. No, all of this is leading to making applications in their suffering and being willing to joyfully, by faith, incur whatever losses are going to happen by faith and continue to walk through that journey of suffering, looking to the reward that's ahead of them. So as Abraham received back Isaac as a type, God commands nothing that he is not going to fully recompense and reward whatever loss is suffered in the process of our obedience. And that serves as a type, not just of Jesus, but as an example to us for our obedience as well. Think about Jesus on the cross. Did it look like Jesus was gaining victory in his suffering by appearance or in the immediacy of the moment? But because Jesus was looking ahead, and that's going to be chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus was looking to the joy set before him endured the cross. It looked like everything about God's promises related to Jesus were absolutely failing. But Jesus looking ahead was able to find endurance because of his trust in the faithfulness of God, even in the face of catastrophic loss. So verse 20 through 22, we have Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all at the time of their death, were not concerned with their own death. They were concerned about the furtherance of God's promise that would bring life. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau when he was dying. Jacob blessed Joseph and his sons, leaning on the top of his staff. Joseph, when he was dying, was talking about the Exodus. These patriarchs, without a law, without the clarity of having some large book containing the fulfillment of God's plan, understood the simplicity of the fact that God was working for salvation. And the beauty and the glory of that reward to them consumed their attention so much that their ultimate concern at their death was not their own death, but instead the promise of God. So 
the victory of faith, starting in verse 23 with Moses. We're going to read through verse 23 through 29 um, to cover Moses first. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be the son of, called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as, th- as though they were passing through dry land, uh, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Moses' life before the Exodus, there's a lot of suffering and trouble and difficulty. But ultimately, what's Moses most known for? It's victory. He was the one who led God's people victoriously out of Egypt high-handedly. And he brought, he led God's people through the wilderness to the place where God would dwell among them. They built the tabernacle. It's interesting, verse 23. But I thought the way this is worded about Moses' parents to me is, is fascinating. That Moses was hidden by faith. For they saw he was a beautiful child. You know, the idea of seeing that a child is beautiful is actually only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's only spoken of Moses. The other place is in Acts 7 with Stephen's speech. Stephen says the same thing about Moses' parents. They saw he was a beautiful child. I want to suggest in the context here, this is more than just than them just looking at Moses and thinking, this is a pretty baby. I think pretty much everybody who was having children at the time uh, of Moses probably thought similarly, right? But you remember there was an edict from Pharaoh to murder all the male children in Egypt that were born by the Hebrews. The idea is not just that they thought he was a beautiful child, that when they looked at Moses, here's somebody that God can use. Here's somebody that can be a chosen one that God uses to fulfill these promises. That Moses' parents, by faith, knew what God's plan was. Egypt was not the conclusion of God's plan. God never intended that God's people just remain in Egypt forever. That one day there was supposed to be deliverance. And they saw that God had made a promise. And here is the time. We need deliverance. And so he was hidden by faith. And in verse 24, when Moses had grown up, even his own awareness of God's promises, he saw that there was glory and reward with the oppressed, enslaved, powerless Hebrews, and that there was more reward by faith in having association and camaraderie with them rather than having power and prestige and possession and pleasure in Egypt. That's the reproaches of Christ. Just as Jesus forsook the liberties and comforts of heaven to associate with the weak and the helpless, to be a servant to those who need deliverance. Moses made that choice by faith and he became the deliverer of God's people. And so he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. Folks, the legacy of faith is not just that I endure happenstance, circumstance and don't give up on my belief in God in the process. The legacy of faith is I choose to suffer for the gospel. 
that I make deliberate choices because I'm looking to the reward that God has promised and I will go where God calls me to go, even through fire, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So in verse 27, by faith he left Egypt. Faith overcomes fear. Faith overcomes fear. We're going to see that through the rest of this chapter, that faith overcomes fear of death because of the victory that's with God. He left Egypt, didn't fear the wrath of the king. He endured because he saw him who was unseen. His trust was in the character of God's faithfulness to his promises. I want you to think about this as well. Our culture, just like we talked about this morning, God never gives us the expectation that our culture is supposed to cater to our beliefs. There may come a progressing time when the culture presses more and more heavily against the convictions that Christians have. You imagine what if every job, I mean, I mean literally, what if every job said, you got to work all day Sunday? Every job. Do we say, well, boss said so, no more assembling. Or do we say, boss doesn't have that kind of power. And I don't care what they do against me, God has a greater reward. Is that the kind of faith that we're going to have? That's our legacy. He kept the Passover, and death did not touch them, even though it touched Egypt. For the next few verses, leading through verse 31, it's examples where they were surrounded by judgment and death and were not touched, and they were delivered, even though they were in the midst of those who were God's enemies. So the Passover did not touch the Hebrews. And in verse 24, the Red Sea did not touch the Hebrews. But in the circumstances where they could have fallen with the rest of those who were judged, they were able to be delivered and they found victory. So verse 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Did Moses and the Hebrews have to fight? I mean, like physically with weapons for their deliverance. No, God did the fighting. Their, their role was to simply trust and follow the lead of God. Rahab, did she have to fight for her deliverance? Did she have to take up weapons and fight the uh, citizens of Jericho? No, the people even circling around the wall by faith, they didn't even take up arms to break down the walls. Their job was simply to trust that God's method, no matter how it may look by appearance, is leading to victory and deliverance from God's judgment. So in verse 31, Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient. The reality is we're surrounded by a culture destined for judgment. And because of that, just like Titus was portraying in chapter 1, we're surrounded by influences that the reality is they are ungodly. And it's not that we lose our sense of great compassion and tender mercy in dealing with the lost, but that's not in ignoring the reality of the condition of the disobedience. Compassion and mercy is balanced by the humility that understands the nature of God's cause and will stand with the truth of God. So verse 32 through 38. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sown in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God, having provided something better for us, said apart from us they would not be made perfect. Just imagine for a moment, before we talk any further about these examples, you just take your life, your passion for God, your commitment to God, and let's say all of these examples of people who by faith did these things are set all around you. And you imagine their eagerness, what this is leading to, and, and, and the, the building of God's promises through time, and, and these people see their place in this process, and you imagine, as this maybe could be likened to a relay race where people are passing the baton, And then finally the person behind you, the baton dripping with the blood of those who have ran before you is passed into your hand and you take it and you begin lackadaisically walking around the race race line. You imagine the disappointment. Do you realize where you are? Don't you understand what you're participating in? How can you be treating this so lackadaisically? There is a momentum to what God has done. Just like Titus said, before time even began, God was working forward to the promise manifested in Jesus so that now eternity can be manifest in the proclamation of the gospel, not just in the way it's verbalized in teaching, but lived out in our devotion to God. So, victory. Verse 32 through 34 really outlines great victory. 35 through 38 begins to outline that that same faith through which these great things were done, not disconnected at all from the suffering, that same faith suffers and has suffered in the most extraordinary ways. You know, there's so many through time who for the cause of great kingdoms, great principles, great causes, were willing to be tortured, taken captive, They were willing to lay down their lives for that cause, just as almost like a protest maybe against opposing powers of wickedness. People are willing to suffer when they see a great cause. People are willing to fight and endure conflict to be able to participate in what they believe is the greatest cause that the world has. People die for things so much less than what these men and women died for. And so what, what will you do? What will you be? When he says, verse 40, that something better has been provided so that apart from us they would not be made perfect, that, that language used to really confuse me. Like, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. I think the simplicity is, this is our family legacy. That this wasn't meant to be disconnected from us. And that, We've talked about the principle of exhortation is we are deliberately by faith connecting ourselves to Jesus. We need to be deliberately by faith connecting ourselves to the community God has established in his word. When our faith has no sense of association to these things, we are in serious danger, and I'm in serious danger. When I read these things and I think, well, where am I? I mean, I don't see myself here even in the slightest principle. And it's not the kind of comparison that's meant to demotivate, but the kind of comparison that is meant to motivate, zeal, focus, 
and perspective. Again, Cody has mentioned in his lesson on Sunday in the Bible class this morning, this really is an all-in thing. That's, that's what it is. What that'll look like for each of us, just like how various these examples are, some of these people really didn't suffer as much as others. I mean, one that is legend has it, Isaiah in verse 37, one person is said to have been sown in two. And can you imagine them thinking, why do I have to get the short end of the stick? You know, sown in two, how come I couldn't live a comfortable life? But I think it's like Peter. If you remember at the end of John's gospel in John 21, Peter was being told that the end of his life was going to be pretty unpleasant. And he looked at John and he said, well, what about this man? And Jesus said, what if I desire for him to remain until I come? What is that to you? You follow me. And what he's telling Peter is, you don't worry about him. You know, if I want him to live a comfortable life for the end of his, if I want him to live forever on earth, comfortable, that's none of your business. You focus on following me wherever I take you. That is the ambition of faith. When we simply focus by faith on what God is calling us to be and to do, and when we honor God in fully investing ourselves in the glory of this legacy. Again, faith is not just about enduring circumstances of happenstance, things out of our control. The legacy of faith is choosing to serve God when it will clearly result in a harder life when it is clearly going to result in exclusion and loss. Brethren, when those are the choices we make, we are in the best kind of company. Verse 38, the world was not worthy of these men and women of faith. So the invitation is simply to join in. That's the invitation that he's going to make at the beginning of chapter 12. Join in, immerse yourself. And if you're not zealous for God, if you're not committed and fully devoted, it it is just not consistent with all that God has done and it just shows such blindness and lack of faith. Join in. If there's anything that we can do for you this afternoon, whether it be giving you prayer, giving you help in any way, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.